For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And there's a lot of speculation out there as to what Paul was exactly talking about. And what Paul seems to be saying is that there is an obvious theology within the Old Testament that we should have known that Jesus would have been raised on the third day. In other words, we should be able to go back to the Old Testament and find stories or theology somewhere back there that suggests such a third-day resurrection was even a thing. You have found your way to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. My name is Greg Hall, and welcome to episode 74, Easter and the Cultic Calendar. This is my Easter special. It's it's Easter weekend, and we're going to examine the scriptures in maybe a different light than you've heard before. And before we get to the text, I do just want to give an update. We have not talked about the All-America Listener Challenge very much in the recent past. But I have been keeping track. I have my eye on the downloads map. And recently, we have knocked off several more states. So for those not familiar, this started a couple years ago. And my goal is to have somebody download the podcast from every one of the 50 United States of America. And I can track this because of the analytics within my podcasting software. I can see where people are downloading episodes of the podcast. I don't know who you are, but I know where you live. (laughs) And I am keeping track of it on a map at RethinkingScripture.com. It's right there on the front page. Just have to scroll down a little bit. And most of the United States is colored blue because we've had people in the majority of the country download at least one episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. So who are the holdouts? Well, I'm not very strong in New England. I'll I'll just be honest with you. As I scroll in a little bit closer here on the map, I am still needing somebody from Maine. Vermont is a holdout. Connecticut and Rhode Island, right next to each other, very small. You could have one person in Rhode Island download a podcast and then Maybe they work in Connecticut and you could download another one there. That suffices for me. And also in that area of the country, we're needing somebody from Delaware. So that's five states in kind of that northeastern region of the country. And then we slip over to the middle section of the country in the north. And when we get there, we've got North Dakota and Nebraska that we still have to check off the list. So seven states left. And if you know somebody in one of those areas, I would greatly appreciate it if you recommended to one of those friends uh, the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Also, while you're on the website looking at that beautiful blue map, at the top of the Rethinking Scripture page, I've got a link to information about an Israel trip that I have put together for February 15th through the 24th of 2024. And I wanted to remind you, especially this weekend, uh, a time when the whole world is focusing in on the events of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Maybe next year, 
maybe next year in the Holy Land. Not not for Easter, not for Passover, but in February, <laughs> right after Valentine's Day, <laughs> right before my birthday, by the way, we've squeezed in a 10-day trip to the Holy Land. And I would love to have you on board. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's somebody you know that you've heard them talk about always wanting to go. Now's your chance. This is a great trip, and we cover all the basics, and they are wonderful. Well, enough announcements, because it is the Easter special. And we are talking about uh, not just Easter, uh, the Christian idea of Jesus' resurrection, but also how that fits into, like a puzzle piece, the Jewish Old Testament feasts, these appointed times that God stated in the Old Testament. We'll be asking what relationship these have, and in today's episode, I'll be interacting with an article out of the Tyndale Bulletin. It was written in 2015 by Joel White, and the article is entitled, He Was Raised on the Third Day According to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15.4, colon, a typological interpretation based on the cultic calendar in Leviticus 23. That's quite a title. And we're going to just be interacting with some of the thoughts and ideas that Joel White had, and regarding especially some New Testament passages of Paul. So for those of you maybe new to the podcast or new to the idea that our Christian Easter had its foundations laid within the Old Testament cultic calendar of the Hebrews, I did talk about this as we marched through the book of John way back in episode 25. So if you haven't listened to that recently, that might give you a good brush up on some of these topics. And we'll be talking about slightly different things today. So first, there's a list of appointed times, uh, these congregations or assemblies that uh, the Lord gives to the Hebrew people and tells them, put these on your yearly calendar. One of them was Passover. That's the first one that comes in the spring. And it commemorates the Jewish exodus from Egypt and their freedom from slavery. So it looks back on that event. And Christians, as we will talk about today, see this event as a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He becomes our Passover lamb, in other words. The next Jewish feast is unleavened bread in order. And it's observed immediately after Passover, the next day. And it celebrates the unleavened bread that the Israelites ate during their hasty departure from Egypt. And Christians, again, through some of the writings of Paul that we'll talk about, have given a symbolic understanding of that feast and linked it to Jesus' ministry. Jesus, whose sinless body was buried and in the grave during the beginning of this unleavened bread feast. After the beginning of unleavened bread, there's a Jewish festival called First Fruits, and most people are totally unaware of this, and it celebrates the beginning of the barley harvest in Israel. It's called First Fruits because the first part of the barley crop was to be harvested and offered as the first fruits of that harvest. And again, Christians have linked Jesus's ministry to this Old Testament feast, and they see it as a prefiguration of Jesus's resurrection, which took place on the third day after his crucifixion and burial. And that's not all the Jewish feasts, and we'll talk about all the rest of them, 
But these particular Jewish feasts are significant, especially at this time of year, as Christians remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how they might be tied to their foundational understanding within the Jewish faith. So let's get a little more into the content. I'll give you kind of an outline of Leviticus chapter 23. That's where we're headed first. And then I'll talk a little bit about how Joel White, the author of the article for today, has connected some of these Jewish feasts in maybe a new way for you uh, to the events that we think of as Easter. So first, today's episode does fit within our recent focus of Sabbath and rest. We've talked a lot about how God, in the Old Testament specifically, created sacred space. Stories of temple building started back in the Garden of Eden. It went to the tabernacle. But along the way, there were other places where there was sacred space. The burning bush, Mount Sinai. God is a God of sacred space. And those are top-down decisions where those places are. And today, we'll introduce maybe an idea that might be new to you. It's not only sacred space that comes from top-down, from God, but God also instituted in the Old Testament, sacred times. And it's in Leviticus chapter 23 that these are often translated as appointed times or holy convocations. And I wanted to get this right, so I looked up convocations, and it basically said it's an assembly. And my connection to assemblies, not just as a former junior high teacher myself, but also as a high school student, I remember assemblies. They're a time for everybody in the school to come together in one place, and there's a bit of vision casting that happens in assemblies. The specific high school that I attended in Kaiser, Oregon, back in the 1980s, was very well known for their spirit assemblies. One year, they won a national award. Other years, we won concerts by famous people that nobody remembers anymore because of our school spirit, and most of that happened and was organized in an assembly. As a teacher, when I, when I was a teacher, we had assemblies. Um, one of them was around the magazine drive, and to cast vision, another teacher and myself promised that we would shave our legs if they reached a certain level of magazine sales for the year. And that happened And my most vivid memory of that day is that I had blood running down my legs in front of the entire school population. It was a spirit assembly. And back then, I was willing to do whatever it took to promote school spirit. Well, along those lines, in a totally different circumstance, in Leviticus 23, God sets up these holy convocations. They are times where the whole population is encouraged to either come or send a delegate to Jerusalem, one place. And that's largely because that's where the temple was, uh, God's sacred space. So God is setting up sacred space, and he's also setting up sacred time. And those are both his decision, where and when. So not to go into a whole lot of detail, what are some of these uh, assemblies? Well, the first one listed is just the weekly Sabbath. So one day every week, God is calling people to gather together to change their schedule a little bit and to remember God's faithfulness. Now, I argue in my book, Rethinking Rest, that 
we have landed on the weekly Sabbath as kind of the ultimate picture of godly rest. Some people have. The interesting thing out of Leviticus 23 is the weekly Sabbath, it's really just the beginning of that theology. It's just the tip of the iceberg. And it's because all these other feasts that we're going to talk about had Sabbath days attached to them, and they weren't a part of the regular seven-day weekly cycle. So these are additional Sabbath days added to the calendar by God, also called holy convocations. In my estimation, what God's doing here is he's taking the idea of the weekly Sabbath and he is expanding it. He's making it a bigger theology of what started as one day a week. It's now expanding into other parts of the Jewish calendar. There are seven feasts altogether listed in Leviticus chapter 23. Four of those are in the spring. Three are in the fall. So generally when we talk about the feasts of the Lord from the Old Testament, you're talking about either the spring feasts or the fall feasts. Now, the spring feasts, we've already kind of gone over them, so I'll just blow through this rather quickly. There's Passover. Again, looking back at a time when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, Passover is also the day that Christians associate with Jesus' death and burial. So, something very significant about this. God had already identified a sacred time And then Jesus is doing pretty important things within God's cultic calendar. Unleavened bread, again, was a multi-day feast. It began the next day. And in the description in Leviticus 23, verses 7 and 8, unleavened bread began with a Sabbath day and ended with a Sabbath day. The next one is first fruits. We're going to talk about that in more detail as the episode goes. You've got these first three that happen fairly close together, and then there's a period of 50 days until the last of the spring feasts, and that's the one we often call Pentecost. That's the Greek name. The Feast of Weeks is another way that this has been referred to. You'll find the description in Leviticus 23, verse 21. So those are the four. And interestingly enough, God's sacred times are becoming very important within the ministry of Jesus. He interacts with Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and the day of Pentecost in unique ways in that last year of his earthly ministry. There are three fall feasts. I'll just briefly mention them. Trumpets, which was also designated as a Sabbath day. In the modern Jewish calendar, that's referred to as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. It's their Jewish New Year. Following that, there is the Day of Atonement, also a Sabbath day with no work. And the last of the fall feasts is the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And a tabernacle is just a tent that is kind of equivalent to a booth, something that you would live in for a short period of time, like they did when they left Egypt. The Feast of Booths was another multi-day event, and the first and the last day were Sabbath days as well. So even though we might not picture it this way, from our modern-day perspectives. In the Old Testament, the law expands the picture of Sabbath rest as it goes. Starts out with the weekly Sabbath as a foundation. It builds and adds more days to the Jewish calendar in these yearly festivals. But that's not it. It actually expands even more into this idea of every seventh year as a sabbatical year. 
And then it even expands it further into the year of Jubilee, this 50th year that gives new and different pictures of what it means for Sabbath rest in the land. And by the way, that's also another picture of rest that it expands into eventually is the land that the Israelites are given to live in, Israel. It's often described as a land of rest. So as you look at the theology of Sabbath rest, godly divine rest in the Old Testament, God is giving pictures to this people group for them to display to the rest of the world that the way God has organized this cosmos is different than the way we've chosen to organize it outside of his rule. So before we move on out of Leviticus 23, just a couple more things that you may not have ever heard before. And this is where we'll get into Joel White's article in a little bit more detail. So if you haven't looked at it recently, Leviticus 23 would be worth visiting just uh, to get kind of a mental picture in your head about what I'll be describing. Because it's structured in a series of five divine speeches. White describes them this way. Each of these speeches, he says, they're clearly demarcated by an introductory formula. And what's that formula? Well, it starts out in chapter 23, verse 1. It says, the Lord spoke again to Moses, saying. And what White is saying is these have been identified as the beginning of a divine speech. So we as readers are told the Lord again spoke to Moses, saying. And then the speech happens. Within Leviticus chapter 23, there are five of these, five times. It's there in verse 1. It's again in verse 9, verse 23, verse 26, and lastly in verse 33. And White says that these correspond to five sets of instructions, and they concern, number one, in the first speech, the Sabbath, Passover, and Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second speech involves the Feast of Firstfruits and the Feast of Weeks. In the third one, he talks about the Solemn Day of Rest. In the fourth, it's the Day of Atonement. And the fifth is the Feast of Tabernacles. English translations don't give notice to these five different speeches, per se. They will organize the chapter in different ways, based on how we think of those ideas. But White is arguing that the literary structure built within the chapter, it has important hermeneutical ramifications that maybe we haven't considered. He says it this way, Surprisingly, many commentators ignore the integrity of the divine speeches, especially when they outline this chapter, opting to divide Leviticus 23 according to the descriptions of the feasts as they become normative in later Jewish practice. And he says this has affected the interpretation of the passage in a number of ways. And the most important, and here's kind of the crux of his argument, is that the way it's been interpreted has inserted an artificial separation between two of these feasts that the literary structure says should be understood together, the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks, despite the fact that they are grouped together in one divine speech, we have separated them. 
He says, a quick glance at the major English Bibles substantiates the near ubiquity of this approach. They divide the text between verses 14 and 15, and they give these passages separate headings, generally those noted above, the name of the feast. And it's our modern-day divisions that go against the intention of the unified divine speech and the content that each of those speeches reveals. So, breaking away from his article, you may be somebody that's never even read Leviticus 23, and now I'm asking you to see it in specific sections so that we can get maybe a new meaning out of it. But this might be your first exposure to even know that there were seven festivals talked about in that chapter. What White is trying to point out is that the original text has literary separations built into this one chapter, and that those literary separations were there for a good reason. And so for us, in our modern-day ideas and the way we approach Scripture, for us to break them into different sections, that may be helpful on one level for us to understand which feast we're talking about, but that might actually cause us to miss the way this chapter was originally organized. And there's something within that original organization that White argues is key to maybe our understanding, not just of the Jewish feasts, but the way Jesus interacted with them. And the one he's going to harp on the most are these two feasts in the third divine decree, and they are the Feast of first fruits and the Feast of Weeks. And those two, within the original literary structure, are put together. And he argues that that's because both of those involved portions of grain harvest. The Feast of First Fruits happened first, and that's because the barley harvest came out of the ground and was ready to harvest first. And so the grain harvest began with first fruits, and it ended 50 days later when the wheat crop was ready to be harvested. And White argues that these two are put together within Leviticus 23 because they signify the beginning and the ending of the grain harvest. And we are being encouraged by the text to see those two events as defining the beginning and the ending of a period of time within Israel's history every year where they were not only relying on God to bring the crop to harvest, but also having these sacred times where they acknowledged his divine rule. White says it this way in his article, The Feast of Weeks was viewed as a ritual dedication of the grain harvest, and it began with the waving of a sheaf of firstfruits of barley, marking the beginning, and the waving of bread from the firstlings 50 days later of the wheat harvest. And that marked the end of that process. The sheaf of firstfruits, which was taken from the very first barley harvested each year, and with which the grain harvest began, symbolically represents the entire harvest period. And by waving it before the Lord, the priest is acknowledging on behalf of the people that the entire harvest is God's gift. So breaking away from White's article, you might be wondering, how in the world is this an Easter special? <laughs> We're just in the book of Leviticus. Well, all that's going to change in just a minute. So 
how are we going to tie Jesus and his ministry into the foundation that we've laid thus far in the episode? In his article, White quickly now goes to Paul in the New Testament. Paul's a great author. Uh, He knows his theology very well. And he also introduces new ways of viewing the Old Testament that we might not have come up with on our own had he not been there to help us. One of those that White mentions in his article is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, where Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And there are a lot of theologians that have looked at this statement, this last one, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and there's a lot of speculation out there as to what Paul was exactly talking about. The scriptures he's talking about would be the Old Testament. And what Paul seems to be saying is that there is an obvious theology within the Old Testament that we should have known that Jesus would have been raised on the third day. In other words, we should be able to go back to the Old Testament and find stories or theology somewhere back there that suggests such a third day resurrection was even a thing. White, in his article, is going to make the argument that the third day reference might refer to the Feast of Firstfruits. We'll get there in just a minute. But before we do, there are other passages that have explicit third day references. When you go back into the Old Testament, there are just some stories that have third day references built into them. Some of these you might be very familiar with. Uh, When Abraham took his son Isaac, to sacrifice him. At the beginning of that third day, it actually says in the text, Genesis 22, 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And how might that play into a third day reference about Jesus? Well, it was on that third day that Abraham raised his eyes that Isaac, his son, his unique son, got his life back because he had been condemned to death three days earlier. So while Isaac never actually died, the story of Isaac's sacrifice and God providing a ram in his place, lots of people see that as a picture of what Jesus did, theologically speaking, on the cross. And by the way, Genesis 22, that story, the question that Isaac asked is, where is the lamb? Because he's carried the wood up for the sacrifice not knowing that he was going to be the one necessarily on the sacrificial altar. He asked the question, where's the lamb? And one thing that not many people recognize is the lamb was never provided in that story. It's a ram that is caught in the thicket, which coming out of that story, there's really one question that begs to be asked. What happened to the lamb? Where is the lamb that God will provide? And that can lead directly to the ministry of Jesus. And let's just quickly go through some of the other third-day explicit references. We'll finish with the two that White suggests in his article are possibly the most obvious ones coming out of the Old Testament. Hosea 6, 2, which says, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. 
So Hosea 6.2 is one of those references that Paul may have been referring to. And the other most obvious one that you may have already thought of, the first one you thought of, because it's one Jesus references. And that's Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. It's the story of Jonah being swallowed by the great fish. And if you remember, this is kind of a death, burial, resurrection story, at least typologically. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Jonah's dead. But he somehow comes out of that situation, spit up on the ground, out of the belly of the great fish, alive. And Jonah 1.17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So we've got this statement of Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. And there's something in Paul's head that has him thinking that it was obvious, according to the scriptures, that Jesus would not just die for our sins, but that he would be buried, that he would be raised on the third day. And all of this was just somewhere in those Old Testament scriptures. Well, in his article, White does a really good job of taking some of the other statements that Paul makes, where Paul seemingly takes these feasts of the Lord from Leviticus 23 and applies them to Jesus's ministry on our behalf. He does it for us. In other words, there's no guesswork what Paul is thinking when he says, clean out the old leaven. This is one of the activities leading up to the unleavened bread feast. People will go through their houses and clean out all the leaven in the house. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, (laughs) just as you are, in fact, unleavened. He's talking about a lump of dough. In the scriptures, leaven sometimes is referred to or likened to sin in a person's life. And a lot of people think that that's because when you enter leaven into dough, it starts a process of breaking down the structure of the dough. That's what causes the air bubbles to come into place, and it causes your bread to rise. It's the leaven that starts that process, but that process is an act of dying and death. So what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 5, clean out the old leaven in your life, he is saying, the sin in your life, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump of dough. And I love that because I often resemble a lump on the couch, especially on Sunday afternoons. So that you may become a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, without sin. And then he says, for Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed. And White's argument about that verse that Paul wrote is he obviously is taking two ideas out of this Leviticus 23 feast of the Lord. Specifically in this verse, it's Passover and unleavened bread. And he's taking those Old Testament ideas of appointed times, and he's bringing them typologically into the New Testament as having been fulfilled by Jesus's ministry. His death was the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb. His sinless life causes us to become a new lump of dough without leaven within our own life. 
And Paul does this. He talks typologically about these feasts out of the Old Testament, these appointed times. And it's not the only place. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, in talking about the order of the resurrection, Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. In other words, he takes the idea of this appointed time, this festival out of the Old Testament, and he applies it and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of that idea. He is the first fruits. And this is where White's article takes an unexpected direction that you may not be familiar with. You may not have heard this before. He suggests that Paul would have understood that the sheaf of first fruits was to be waved before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath, after Passover, the very day that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's already established earlier in his article that through the organization of the divine speeches, the waving of the sheaf of the first fruits on the day after the Sabbath, after Passover, is connected to the waving of the bread of the firstlings in the Feast of Weeks. And that together, they represent the beginning and the end of the grain harvest. And that the former, the first one, consecrates the latter. And White argues that in the same way, the resurrection of Christ on the third day is the beginning of the resurrection that will be completed at the end of days. And likewise, it both initiates and consecrates the rest, ensuring that the full resurrection, the full harvest, will take place after a divinely ordained interim. And the New Testament refers to that interim time as the last days. And you might be under the impression that we're in the last days now, but biblically speaking, we have been in the last days since Jesus' resurrection. It's not a new idea. It is the interim period between the first fruits of the resurrection and the rest of the harvest coming in. So it's White that argues that because of the way the divine speeches are organized in Leviticus 23, that pairs the idea of the first fruits harvest, the barley harvest, and the Feast of Weeks, the wheat harvest, because those two are included within one divine speech, he is suggesting that the grain harvest was viewed as one overall event. And because Paul takes that idea and weaves it into Jesus' resurrection, it suggests that we're waving that resurrection before the Lord, trusting that God will bring in the rest of the harvest. And that's just a beautiful picture. So this Easter weekend, as you're going through all the things that we do, we remember his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Maybe for the first time, you'll be able to also add to that picture this idea that these sacred times that God set up in the Old Testament long before Jesus' birth, God knew that these appointed times were important because they were looking forward to a time when they would be fulfilled through the death, burial, and resurrection of God's unique Son. 
And that's the hope that the Christian worldview presents. It's a resurrection that happens on the third day, and it's one that guarantees the rest of the harvest will come in. And that rounds out our Easter special. Thanks for listening in, and have a blessed weekend.